So I've been listening to a lot of Christmas music lately. Have you guys, do you guys do that? Yeah. What, what are some favorites, maybe this year or of all time? Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby specifically, what's all of them? <laughs> wow. Any others? That, anything I should know about? Blue Christmas with the high harmonies? Yeah. Elvis. Yes. That's a great record. Nice. Of course it is. <laughs> you would. Excellent. On that note, I'll pray to close us. <coughs> it, it's really strange to me, um, listening to Christmas songs, the variety of different types. That, I mean, we have Bob Dylan Christmas polkas and songs about trucking trees. Um, but this time of year, I, you're likely to sing, you know, they, they range from talking about the trappings of the holidays and the weather to shopping um, to more traditional churchy hymns about the birth of Christ. Everyone's got a Christmas album too. Like if you, <laughs> if you go to the record store and go on iTunes, you're like, they got a Christmas album? <laughs> and and we, I mean, they range from classics, Ding, and Nat King Cole, and Charlie Brown Christmas is, is our favorite, I think. Um, not my favorite, not my wife's favorite. Um, She's more like Mariah Carey or, you know, uh, very controversial pick, the Amy Grant Christmas album in our house. <laughs> but <clears throat> all these, well, not all of them, but a lot of them, whether they're like sacred or secular Christmas music, um, it's one theme, especially this year, is kind of risen out of them. It, it seems like it captures more imaginations, whether they're like focusing specifically on Christ on Christmas or just the season, is this, this longing for peace. It, it seems like it really captures the Christmas imagination. This time of year, maybe it's, it, I was trying to think why that is. Maybe it's, it's just that time of year that as you close a year out that you consider these things. Um, we're not necessarily in a, in a big war time, but our generation has been in wartime, and maybe it's that time of year that you realize how bad it is to be separated from loved ones and to have people out fighting wars at Christmas time. Maybe it's just like the kind of accounting you do in your own life at the end of the year. Uh, it seems like peace is on everyone's minds and in everyone's songs. You know, today, uh, <coughs> one of the, <coughs> the first song that we sang together. O come, O come, Emmanuel has that line, and be thyself our king of peace. Uh, that's got to be like the heaviest, um, but most hopeful Christmas song. Uh, even when, even when uh, someone of Jewish origin like Neil Diamond sings it, it still <laughs> is like uh, a longing for peace for a savior. Or um, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, right? That, that's another one that's, that, that's just... All the way through it, it's just this longing. It says, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. You know, it's this hope. 
And, and coincidentally, that song was written in the Civil War, um, in the midst of, of that kind of trial and tumult. Or the song that Katie just ended with, Do You Hear What I Hear? It is sweet. Uh, I, I won't refute that, but it was also written during the Cuban Missile Crisis, during a lot of uncertainty, during um, a time when people are really scared. We thought, <laughs> you know, we were and our enemies were one button push away from maybe ending this, you know? Uh, or, of course, John Lennon's happy Xmas, the war is over, um, written during Vietnam. You know, this, uh, all these songs ha- have this kind of, this, the spirit of the times, the zeitgeist, hoping for peace. And I think these Christmas songs ca- have actually a prophetic mood to them. Even in a culture that is kind of as a whole moving further and further away from celebrating Christmas as the birth of Jesus the Christ, war and Christmas seem at odds. Peace seems far away. It kind of seems impossible or unlikely. So we sing about it, we hope for it. Even in the middle of commercialization or secularization or you know, sentimentality, Christmas reminds us of our unpeace, and it makes us long for peace. With all these songs about peace and our psalm this morning, Psalm 89, I can't help but remember another Advent song about peace. It's a, a biblical song of hope, of longing. It's in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, and it's on the lips of Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. Uh, he was, if we remember the story, this, this is always a little before when we start telling the Christmas story, right? Uh, we always start with Mary, you know, but we don't start with Zechariah and the angel showing up and Gabriel says, you're going to have a son and his name's John and he's going to um, prepare the way for the Lord and, and Zechariah is kind of shocked and then the, the angel says, and you're not going to talk, um, which try to think through that as a husband of a pregnant woman that you spend most of her pregnancy silent. That, that's fascinating to me to try to think about that. But <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but Zechariah's song, and, and I'll read it at length, um, it's really fascinating how in tune it is with the Psalm 89 and some of these things that the psalmist is crying out for many, many years before Jesus' birth. It says, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. He said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come from heaven to shine on those living in darkness 
and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. It shouldn't be surprising to us that these words come to us in Luke's gospel. Peace is like Luke's major theme. He uses that word, and the Greek word is irene, um, more than any of the other three gospels combined. God's peace expected and hoped for by Zechariah permeates his message throughout. We have Zechariah's song of peace, of expectancy in the first chapter, and, and we have Jesus, the resurrected Christ, in chapter 24, the last chapter, addressing his disciples, saying, Peace be with you. We find that what Zechariah hopes for is that someone might guide our feet in the path of peace. <coughs> Lest all this peace talk sound too dreamy or too abstract, I want to look at a few things about peace that might help us help our thinking, help our prayer in these final days of Advent. The first thing is <clears throat> when God brings peace, he brings peace in Christ. He brings peace to each and every one of us, right? Because sometimes it's, it's kind of it's a temptation and it's a little bit of a cop-out when we talk about peace that it's something out there. It, it, it's never us. It's, it, it, if they would change their mind we would have peace. Or if the people fighting on our behalf would change their mind, we would have peace. Peace only having to do with wars fought on far-off shores or with violence in places that we don't have to drive through if we don't want to. But the amazing truth of the gospel is that when God sent his son to us, when his eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us, he sent the greatest peace offering imaginable to the most violent and unpeaceful creatures imaginable. Us. <laughs> you see, the primary culprits of unpeace is each and every one of us. And, and, and bear with me, this is good news. <laughs> I stand before you, I, I confess that I'm one of them. I'm capable of terrible things. I'm guilty of terrible things. It makes me remember this saying by this um, really gruff theologian, Stanley Hirawas, and he talks about his pacifism, which is his practice of peace, and, he, and I'll paraphrase because we're in a church. He says, I'm a pacifist because I'm a Texan and I'm a violent SOB, is what he says. I'm a pacifist because I'm a Texan and I'm a violent SOB. And I think to some extent we're all violent SOBs, right? <laughs> Last week there was this kind of cultural phenomenon. Um, some of you were part of it. Have you heard of podcast? Have you heard of serial podcast? Um, it, it's this, this kind of 12-part series, um, and it's done by the same people who do radio shows, but it's exclusively on the Internet, and they investigated this 15-year-old murder case. And I won't give anything away, because now everyone has all this time on their hands so they can devote 12-plus hours of their life to having earbuds in their ears. But Thursday morning was the last episode of this, and I was at the Y across the street, and I swore everyone with headphones on was probably listening to cereal, right? But, so, and, and Phil told me that over at American Underground, they had a cereal party that they actually catered it with cereal, C-E-R-E-A-L, 
and listen together. So that's like the most Durham thing that's ever happened in the world. But I'll try not to spoil it, but the plot centers around like re-investigating this 15-year-old murder case of a, of a high school kid, um, Adnan Syed, and he purportedly murdered his girlfriend, Heyman Lee. And the host, Sarah Koenig, has these conversations in prison with Adnan Syed. And his case has all these inconsistencies and, and like kind of ambiguous evidences. And she seems, when she's talking to him, she's generally sympathetic. She wants to believe that he did not murder her, even though he was convicted of it. But there's this really fascinating back and forth between the two of them one time when she tells him that she thinks he's too nice of a guy to have murdered Hay. And Adon, he's, he's now in his... 30s, and he's a practicing Muslim. He, he, when she suggests that he's too nice of a guy to have killed his girlfriend 15 years ago, he blows up at her. He says he doesn't want her on his side because he's a nice guy. He didn't believe that about himself even. He says he doesn't think of himself as a particularly nice guy. He thinks of himself as a normal guy. <laughs> but none of that means he isn't capable of killing somebody. He, he says we're all capable of killing someone. He wants her on our side because he didn't kill her, because the evidence says that, and he can prove it. And I think this is kind of an accurate picture. Uh, I was struck by the honesty of that, the accurate picture of the human situation, that God sent his son Jesus to be born into for our sake. He sent a prince of peace to be born amidst wolves, right? Like, against people that tear him up. Not as a conquering ruler and, and that was there were certain subsets of of Jewish uh, people in antiquity that that, that was their expectation that, that that God would send this conquering king that would ride down on the clouds and sort it all out violently and then it would all be good to go for Israel. Um, but God didn't choose to do that. He sent a, a vulnerable baby at the mercy of a merciless world. And that way, I think the, the cradle, the, the um, what's it called in the manger? The manger, actually. Uh, <clears throat> seems to kind of foreshadow the cross, right? This is this rough-hewn vessel that holds a savior. Jesus starts his life in swaddling clothes, and he, in his, and he finishes it stripped naked. God sent his son into a world of violence, Think about the, the story again, like the genocide that Moses came into. Remember when his mom had to put him in a basket to avoid him getting killed by Pharaoh, who was paranoid that the Jewish people would become too strong and he couldn't continue to oppress him. Jesus was born into Herod's paranoia that would see thousands of Israel's baby boys killed to prevent a, another coup um, against him, against his peace. So God sent his son to share in that, <laughs> to share in everything we share in, hunger and thirst and sorrow and joy and fear and abandonment that Jesus might somehow beat the, the logic of that, beat the defense mechanisms that we put up to deal, how we protect ourselves by hurting others. I think we do this, you know, not just physically, though we do it physically, but we do it emotionally, we do it with our words, we do it economically. 
We do it by excluding people or judging them or avoiding people altogether. Jesus, Jesus wasn't sent by God into a nice world. <laughs> he was sent into a normal world, <laughs> the world that we know. He was sent into a world that was, um, Tennyson said it was red in tooth and claw. That's the kind of world that we live in. That's the kind of world Jesus was sent in for us. We're sinful, unpeaceful, and violent. And I think we're this way because we're afraid a lot of times. We're afraid of, of death. We're afraid that we're going to be exposed, that someone's going to find us fake. We're afraid of scarcity, that there's not going to be enough. We do crazy things because we're afraid. And, but it's into that world, into each and every one of our little microcosms of that world, that into that darkness that God sent a little light, a little light named Jesus. And the invitation is that we open ourselves to that light, that we accept that love and grace, but also the judgment of our deadly state. I was talking with someone about light this week, and I think it was Jeff, and he was saying about how when you're used to darkness, light just really hurts your eyes, and, and though it's the best thing for you, you don't want anything to do with light. That's the type of world Jesus came into, to accept that love and that grace. Romans says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that, that kind of joining to what God's doing, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when God brings peace in Christ, he brings it to each and every one of us. The second thing, when God brings peace in Christ, he brings peace to all of us. Peace isn't just personal. It's systemic too. It's, it's out there also. So we, we can affirm that peace is also out there. It's something to long for between peoples and countries and all creation. I love, uh, do you hear what I hear? Because it's, you know, again, it's that bottom-up movement of it, it all starting with a little lamb and making its way up the ladder to the mighty king who says, pray for peace everywhere. And all these structures and all these power dynamics, that there's this thread of longing, of hoping for peace. Isaiah looks forward to the, the coming of this type of savior. And I'm not going to sing it for you. But Isaiah 9 says, and calls him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. I think that the grand irony of our good news that's at the center of our faith, the gospel, that this wonderful, mighty, everlasting character is a little child and then an executed criminal. Isn't that crazy? They might defeat sin and death and all those machinations of evil and unpeace by taking it on himself. They might bear witness to in his very being to the fact that peace is a deeper reality than violence. And that peace is where this whole thing is headed. Even when it doesn't look like that. From brokenness and division and strife towards wholeness. What the 
the Hebrew Bible calls shalom, remaking. And that Jesus might be a cure for each of us, but also for all of us. Every kind of concentric circle, you can map it out. My, myself, my relationships, my family, my, my community, this country, this world. Paul writes in, in Ephesians, Jesus, he himself is our peace. Peace for our, our own restless hearts and, and everything that emanates out from them. Peace for our world. Breaking down dividing lines and planting seeds for his kingdom. So in all this, these Christmas song listenings, another observation I met is how much, uh, and this is specifically like hymns or like Jesus Christmas songs, how much they talk about Israel and Jesus as king, you know? Um, it might seem obvious that that's what this whole thing's about, but it's, it also strikes me as a remarkably different focus than a lot of our, um, the way we talk about our gospel, the shape that it takes. We normally talk about Jesus as one who forgives sins or who justifies us, who died and rose for us, all of which are true and so important, so gospel. But they've got to be set inside this huge story. And I think that's what these Christmas songs try to do. This huge story of that Advent kind of reorients us to. Of God's people awaiting their Savior. And then not just their Savior, but the Savior of the whole world. The whole world's only hope for peace. The king returning home. And I, I haven't read or watched enough Lord of the Rings to know that motif there, but I know, I know Robin Hood. And I know when King Richard the Lionheart comes home, things are going to change for the better and there will be peace. And, and, and there's going to be this, this end to all these people who, who just put a band-aid over the strife and say, uh, you know, as the prophets say over and over, they cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. He's going to bring real peace instead of some sort of, you know, weak or malignant peace. Like, like uh, there's a thing in, in the time of Jesus' birth, the Pax Romana, which was a, it was peace, but it was a pretty violent peace. Um, as the psalm puts it, righteousness and justice are at the foundation of God's throne. Love and faithfulness go before him, set a path. So when God brings peace in Christ, he brings it to all of us. And finally, when God brings peace in Christ, he shows us what peace looks like and calls us to join in that project of peacemaking. So one thing about peace is that it's not static. It's not something that we just think about and it happens. Or it's not something, it's not like a status we achieve, a chip, a token. It's active. It takes work. And it's one of the primary jobs that Jesus gives us. We're peace-made peacemakers. Peace-made peacemakers. We, we show off our trust in God, our faith in the King, by spreading his peace in small and big ways. We become ambassadors ambassadors to this kind of living because we start to have our imaginations and our expectations reshaped. We, we start to expect that God will do it because God has done it. He, he will protect us. He will provide. He will make new. He'll make whole. 
He'll reunite the worst enemies because he's done that to us. This is the way Christians should be known. This is one of the things they should be known by. Our love, sure, but also our peace. And and maybe that affects the kind of prayers we pray. You know, we pray the Lord's Prayer, the one that he taught us. And it begs God for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and somehow correlates how we forgive others with how God forgives or has forgiven us. I think that's a good prayer to start with. I think we should also be praying St. Francis' prayer of, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, a tool in God's hands to make peace. But that's generally not really the case. That's not what we're known by. It's really saddening this week. I saw these polls and I, I probably I believe them actually, and, and they they polled um, uh, Americans across all these lines about the recent CIA torture stuff, and they found that 20% of the gen- general population didn't feel like the torture was good or appropriate or a peacemaking measure, and 69% of white American evangelicals did. You know, like we're we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're to be a people of peace and we're three and a half times more likely to approve of of some of these awful dehumanizing unpeaceful things again I don't have a solution for what we do or what we need to do but gosh I know that that's not the way of Jesus Jesus was generally on the other end of that uh I know, I, I know these same people that polled this. They, they, I think they generally want peace, but how, how do we expect it to happen? What does it look like? We, we, we seem to have righteousness down pat, that God hates injustice. But sometimes we forget to realize that God hates our injustice too. We forget and we fail to trust God. I, I think that's the key. Like That's at the root of this is trusting God. Trusting God to make things right. So instead we kind of grab and grasp at other ways to do it. And some of these can turn pretty awful. I always think of Philippians 2 when it says, Jesus um, did not, though he, though he was equal with God, did not consider equality God as something to be grabbed at or exploited. That's the way of Jesus. And then Psalm 89 says, Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. What if the Lord was our glory and our strength, our greatest treasure and all of our might, what if we could grow to trust in the Lord, our God, our King, to be our shield? You know, the, the, the one that protects us, who vindicates us, our rescuer. I think that's where peace springs from. Worship, and security, and trust, and faith. In the Sermon on the Mount, amidst a lot of the wild things Jesus says, you know, the Sermon on the Mount gets so muted for us. Like we, we don't take it very seriously because we, 
We don't actually do those things or value those people. Jesus says, and this is kind of his kingdom charter on what the kingdom's going to be like. One of the things he says is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You know, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And there's kind of a, a forward like vindication and right, rightness to that. But this one is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who spread peace. Because when we're doing that, we're, we're sharing in the purpose and mission of God's family, children of God, sons and daughters of God. But I, I also think there's somewhat of a family resemblance here when we're spreading peace. A son of God or a daughter of God is an apple that doesn't fall far from the tree. We're like that because God's like that. And in Jesus, we, we get to see in 3D, in time and in space, in real life situations, what God's peace looks like. We get to begin to imagine ourselves as recipients of his peace because we are. And also as offers of that peace in our own time and in our own space, in our context. We come to realize that the good news, and it's, it's called so many times in the Bible, God's gospel of peace. The good news that shows up in Christ is a peace that's not just for us, but it's with us. God's peace is not just for us, but it's with us. Emmanuel, God, with us. God took on flesh that he might redeem us. God pursues us so relentlessly for our salvation. God brings peace to each and every one of us and to all of us through his Son, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and begs us to, to join in in that peacemaking.